This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We've all heard this many times. Exercise is good for you. We know we should participate in some form of exercise, and we commonly recommend exercise to our patients. We're very busy. Our patients are very busy. So how do we develop a regular exercise program that we can adhere to, and how do we get our patients to realize the benefits they can achieve with exercise? To help answer these questions, we have with us today Dr. Robert Scales, an exercise physiologist and director of cardiac rehabilitation and wellness at Mayo Clinic Arizona. Thank you for joining us today, Robert. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, the title of today's podcast is Exercise is Medicine, Adding Years to Life and Life to Years. What's the background behind that title? Well, the the concept of prescribing exercise for health is not a new one. Someone by the name of Hippocrates has been talking about the medicinal qualities of exercise for thousands of years. However, I'd like to talk about this topic to help shape the way physicians think about uh, exercise. Uh, with that in mind, I'd like to ask you a question. If the FDA approved the medication that would guarantee you it would improve the heart's ability to pump blood around the body, it would open up new blood vessels to allow oxygen to reach its destination to give you more energy and more stamina, it would lower your blood pressure, improve your cholesterol, and control your blood glucose levels to prevent diabetes. It would make your bones and muscles stronger, and not only would you feel better physically, you'd also feel better emotionally. And this medication was free and had no side effects. Would you consider prescribing this medication? Well, I guess I'd have to see if my health plan covers it. But, uh, yeah, I think I would. Yeah, well, I, I think you know where I'm going this uh, with this uh, uh, discussion. Uh, you know, in most cases, you don't necessarily need to get those benefits from a pill or a needle. You can all get all those benefits from a well-designed physical activity and exercise program. And I say well-designed because if it's badly designed, there could be some risk. For example, if you have an exercise for an extended period of time or you have an existing injury or health condition and you go out there and exercise inappropriately, there could be some risk. So I believe it's the responsibility of the physician in combination with allied healthcare professionals such as the exercise physiologist or physical therapist to help patients know their physical limitations with exercise and also give them a guideline so that they can get all those benefits uh, without hurting themselves in the process. And uh, I think it's important that we embrace the medicinal qualities of exercise because the evidence shows that um, it can add years to our life and life to our years. So put another way, it can prevent premature death, which means we increase the, the lifespan, and it can reduce the number of years that we spend in our life with illness, disease, and physical limitations, which for me is increasing the health span. Sounds like a pretty good medication to me. I well, think it's pretty powerful. A lot of my practice is dealing with patients who have risks for cardiovascular disease. So I'm constantly talking to them about diet, weight loss. But what advice can you give me and other busy physicians as they consider promoting physical activity and exercise with their patients? 
The American College of Sports Medicine, which is the governing body for uh, sports medicine professionals within the United States, have a campaign right now. It's a national initiative uh, called Exercise is Medicine, and its main mission is to have every physician talk to every patient at every visit about the medicinal qualities of exercise. However, this uh, governing body recognizes that physicians are very busy with multitasking, uh, complex patient scenarios. Uh, so therefore, they give the physicians options to consider as they think about the task of promoting the medicinal qualities of exercise. So, so in option number one, uh, they recommend simply to ask the patient about their current level of physical activity and exercise. And it might be a uh, a couple of closed-ended questions that don't need to take a long time, like how many days over the past week have you exercised where you've gotten your heart rate and breathing noticeably above normal for at least 10 minutes to accumulate 30 minutes for the day? And then another question might be, what is a typical number of days that you are able to achieve, achieve that amount? So very quickly, you get a, a sense of, how the person is doing in terms of their exercise currently and uh, more typically. Option number two is to uh, recommend exercise with optimism. You know, exercise would be good for you and you can do it. it. Took me five seconds to do that. And then the third option is to counsel and prescribe exercise. And here you might spend a little bit more focused uh, time on the frequency of exercise, the intensity, the time that the person should exercise, and the type of exercise, because there's more more than one way to do it. You may have uh, some idea on what would be in the best interest of the patient. Or you might spend a little bit of time talking about the behavioral aspects of exercise, maybe thinking about the barriers and how to resolve or overcome those barriers. And then the fourth option is to refer out to an exercise professional who may be uh, based in the community or it could be an, a clinical exercise uh, professional such as an exercise physiologist and or a physical therapist. Or you may refer out to um, a specialized clinic like a cardiac rehabilitation center which uh, are very uh, common throughout the United States. Um, now, the physicians are not obligated to to use any one of those options at any given time. They may not have the, the ability to do that in a given situation. However, at least this gives the physician a, a framework to consider as they, they think about the options to them when they don't have a lot of time with patients, as they think about trying to promote exercise. So so exercise in medicine is, is encouraging physicians to prescribe exercise, just like they would any other medication. And there are um, uh, patient education materials that can be downloaded online that can support this discussion about exercise. And uh, the American College of Sports Medicine recognizes that uh, the harmful effects of physical inactivity is a global health problem. So uh, the ACSM initiative is is now spreading to task forces in 41 countries around the world who are preparing to launch this initiative in an effort to, to support our physicians as they try to improve the health of a nation. Some of those techniques you're describing sound a little bit like motivational interviewing. Is that uh, is that part of this? So motivational interviewing is uh, a method of communication that was originally developed for the treatment of substance abuse and addictions and uh, is now being applied to a variety of 
uh, health behaviors in clinical populations. And uh, if you don't mind, I can give you a quick uh, overview of what that involves. Sure. Uh, so, so, so motivational interviewing, the goal of motivational interviewing is trying to uh, help the patient identify what motivates them to change their behavior, what's important to them in their life, and, uh, and then try to help them discover how their current behavior is either helping achieve what's important or getting in the way. And uh, the objective of motivational interviewing is to try to arrange the conversation so that the patients make the arguments for change rather than the clinician uh, arguing for change. And uh, we do this by asking good good open-ended questions where the patient might get to talk uh, about uh, perhaps the reasons for change. What would be a reason uh, for you for considering starting an exercise program? Or a question might be, if you did decide to exercise, what would that look like for you? What would have to happen to make that more likely to happen? What gives you some confidence that you could do this? How might I help you uh, work through this with you to come up with a plan that's right for you? So um, I, I think uh, the mindset of motivational interviewing is very much the patient is going to have some say in the decision-making on whether or not they adopt the exercise plan or not. And, and uh, motivational interviewing, we respect that. We respect that that we have some expert information to share. However, it's a partnership with the patient and trying to avoid this idea of just telling the person what to do because sometimes that can backfire and it doesn't resonate well with patients. Network with colleagues at the beautiful Ritz-Carlton in Orlando, Florida during the upcoming Sports Medicine for the Primary Care Clinician course in March of 2019. Learn effective and cost-efficient evidence-based practices to address sports medicine injuries commonly seen in the primary care setting, including when to refer to a specialist and when to allow the patient to return to regular activity. For more information and to register, visit ce.mayo.edu. Join us weekly here at Mayo Clinic Talks as we discuss best practices and burning questions. Subscribe today using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Let's talk about the specific benefits of exercise. Uh, just this morning, as I was eating breakfast, I had the news on, and there was a report that a new study has shown that exercise can actually improve cognitive decline. But let's talk about the traditional risk factors uh, of heart disease. I think there's a lot more evidence that shows that exercise is a benefit for those, such as high blood pressure, elevated lipids. Is that right? Yes, uh, so uh, maybe we should start with the metabolic syndrome. We know about uh, high triglycerides, low HDL, elevated waist circumference, high blood pressure, high blood glucose levels. Now, all of those risk factors worsen with physical inactivity and can go on to promote the metabolic syndrome. However, each and every one of those risk factors can be improved if we are physically active and, and follow a well-designed exercise program. However, Michael Joyner, who's a colleague from Mayo Clinic Rochester, wrote an interesting review paper um, uh, to, uh, to argue the, uh, the case that the significant uh, 
reduction in mortality with exercise can fully be explained by risk factor reduction alone. Instead, he argues that um, uh, you know this can be explained by the positive effect exercise has on endothelial function and the autonomic nervous system. So, um, you know, exercise can train the blood vessels to relax and dilate more efficiently, and it can regulate the sympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, which controls our heart rate, our heart rate recovery, our heart rate variability, and heart rhythm. So simply put, uh, exercise, if it's done well, can uh, help the heart and blood vessels to become more flexible. Um, there are 33 uh, longitudinal studies uh, that have shown uh, with large uh, patient population, uh, uh, patients have been tracked over the years, that uh, fit individuals uh, versus unfit individuals uh, can significantly reduce their mortality. And a study by Jonathan Myers of over 6,000 men at the VA hospital in Palo Alto who were studied for over six years it was identified that low exercise capacity was a more powerful predictor of mortality than any other risk factor, including ST segment abnormality on a stress EKG. And if we consider exercise as an investment, well, what's the return on the investment? Well, training studies show that exercise causes adaptations within the heart and adaptations within the blood vessels. So that this really results in an increased supply of blood leaving the heart and an increased ability to transport blood with oxygen to allow the body to function. Exercise also improves the quality and the quantity of our blood. It increases the red cell mass and the total plasma blood volume. And as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, according to the Frank Starling law of the heart, more blood into the heart causes more stretching of the myocardium, which can increase contractility and increased stroke volume. So more blood in means more blood out. And uh, this corresponds with a, a lowering of our, our heart rate at rest and, and during exercise. And I mention this because a lot of our uh, patients are now starting to wear tracking activity monitors or heart rate monitors that may be uh, associated with their, their their cell phone or their apps. And uh, if we notice that our heart rates are, 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 are lower over a course of a month or two after starting an exercise plan, that might be evidence that we've actually improved our heart function. And maybe we haven't lost the weight, but hey, don't give up because uh, we're actually improving something that's very important to our health. Mm-hmm. Um, how, much, how much exercise should we be doing every week? So there is a guideline for uh, how much exercise, according to the evidence, uh, will actually make a difference to our health. And the CDC guideline is based on 60 years of uh, scientific research studying uh, exercise, what works, what doesn't work, and they've come up with a, 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 a statement for um, a physical activity guideline for all Americans. And they recommend that, that we try to get at least... Uh, 30 minutes of uh, accumulated exercise where we get our heart rate and breathing noticeably uh, to significantly above normal uh, most days of the week. So if we're accumulating 10-minute increments three times a day, that would count to 15 bouts would count to make 30 or a whole 30, but at least 30 minutes 
most days of the week uh, has been shown to make uh, significant improvements in our fitness and, and, and our health. And uh, I kind of liken it to, um, to like, paying a, a rent or a mortgage. You know, uh, the more you maybe pay towards your mortgage, the nicer the house, uh, the better the quality of living you have. Uh, so exercise can be seen as the same. So if you, if you can get a little bit more, uh, exercise in your life, uh, then maybe you you have a greater return on investment. But uh, uh, moderate intensity is to vigorous intensity. You know, is uh, generally in that range of between forty to sixty to sixty to seventy five percent of what we would call our peak performance on a on a if we were to do a stress test. We don't always have that information, so. That's a general guideline. If patients are not exercising at all, they may need some time to work up to that level of two and a half hours for the week. So start off with maybe five, ten minutes a day. Get up to one hour a week. Move to your, you know, 20 minutes a day, uh, you know, over the course of a two or three week period and then progress over a six week period to your three hours. So we don't have to get people there right away, but uh uh, I think it's sensible to allow the body to get used to what you're asking it to do, and we create that new habit uh, that we're trying to establish in our life. Okay. What about those who can't do vigorous exercise? Is mild or moderate exercise of any benefit? So when you say can't do, you know, the, you know, obviously there's clinical populations who have limitations. It could be uh, orthopedic limitations. So. So we have to think around that. If it is orthopedic, uh, then, you know, there are other things that you can do. There's low-impact activities uh, where you're sitting down as opposed to carrying your weight. Uh, There's activities that you can do in the water, you know. So, for example, you know, I live here in Arizona. I call it the swimming pool capital of America. So there's a lot of swimming pools around uh, down at the city pool or in people's backyards or around uh, where people can actually get into the water and and feel light on their feet and even wear a, a buoyancy aid around their waist so they can float with their head above the water and they can start to move around and, and, and jog in the water and uh, actually move around and get their exercise that way without hurting their joints and mobilize those joints, uh, increase that core stability, and if they go for more than 10 minutes, they start to train their heart and blood vessel system. And uh, there are added medicinal qualities of that kind of therapy in that we increase the, the the circulation of blood from the extremities back to the heart and to the brain. It's been shown that uh, venous return can improve in the water. So you'll notice a lowering of the heart rate. So so that's just one example. There could, could be many other reasons why people are not able to exercise with what you might call traditional land-based upright activities. So... That's where, in my practice, I'm able to sit down with people and share the benefits of my experience with exercise and, and, and come up with a plan that's right for that person. Um, so um, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but uh, it, it, obviously there's, there's a lot, lot to your question there. Sure. Do we have to worry about giving a patient a recommendation for exercise and maybe they've got some occult coronary disease that we're not aware of and creating a cardiac event from exercise? Is that common? 
the, there was an event called the Great North Run of England in 2005, and at the time it was the largest uh, half marathon in the world. And in 2005, the world record time for half marathon was uh, broken, uh, where someone is able to run a half marathon in under uh, an hour. Uh, but four people died during that event. And um, when they interviewed the medical director for the London Marathon, which is another uh, major event, uh, running event uh, in the world. Um, the medical director said a lot of people were uh, allowed to enter that event uh, without adequate training and uh, preparation, which really reminds us not everybody is ready for high-level sport or physical activity. So we really need to be aware of the weekend warrior. And um I had a patient, a uh, gentleman, a 51-year-old gentleman who who had a heart attack uh, while he was refereeing a soccer game, and uh, he was left with a, a reduced ejection fraction. And uh, he came to me as the director for cardiac rehabilitation, and he told me that he refereed at the weekend to get fit. Now, uh, cardiac rehabilitation was the was the best option for uh, the patient to recover from their heart condition. And at the end of the supervised uh, program, which is available to patients uh, with uh, this type of medical condition, uh, he told me that he now exercises to get fit to exercise. So I think uh, if there is some concern, uh, medical concerns, there are evaluations and tests that you can screen and evaluate someone to to reassure them that, uh, that 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 they don't have risk for uh, a cardiac event, um, and uh, obviously the physicians have access to uh, the patient's medical history. So, so I think they're they're in a good position to know the the clinical needs of the patient. But if they are willing to partner with the exercise professionals uh, within their health system or out in the community, then uh, as a team we can. You know, we can try to exercise that's safe, effective, and hopefully somewhat pleasurable for the patient. Okay. Well, you're, one last question. You're in the field of cardiac rehab. How important is it for patients who have had NMI, have known coronary disease, to participate in some type of exercise with cardiac rehab? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, the World Health, Health Organization really does believe that cardiac rehabilitation in a supervised setting is the best way to recover from a heart condition. It, it really helps people gain that self-confidence about exercise and that confidence that they are going to recover uh, from the heart condition. And um, if you ever talk to a patient about how that actually works, uh, they'll tell you when they walk into the supervised setting, they'll see other people like themselves doing what you're going to be asking them to do. Someone who's maybe a little further along in their recovery, someone of the same age uh, uh, and situation as them. And then they'll hear the why and the how of doing it from from professionals and even from other patients and and then they'll get to feel what it's like to do it rather than just telling the person to do it if you actually get to experience what it's like um, using a recumbent bike for example and 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 learning that your blood pressure and heart rate are normal it gives you that confidence and then when you gain that sense of accomplishment that positive feedback really fuels that so there's a lot of psychology and confidence building and um if you if you can really, you know, refer patients to cardiac rehabilitation, uh, even if they only go for a few visits, uh, 
it can give them that that first step to gaining that confidence to to progress to uh, you know an independent plan uh, on their own. All right. Well, we've been discussing Exercise is Medicine with Dr. Robert Scales, the Director of Cardiac Rehabilitation Services at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Robert, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you next week.